want to welcome you into the Building Blocks podcast brought to you by Culture House LLC. Here at Culture House, our mission is to empower leaders and organizations to share one vision and speak with one voice. Today on the podcast, we sit down with a Clarksville, Tennessee firefighter and youth baseball coach, Caleb Slaughter. Whether it is on the field or at the fire department for the last 23 years, Caleb displays loyalty, commitment, and an extremely high level of care. His consistent positive perspective allows for him to make an impact on those he crosses paths with almost immediately. Caleb and I have been friends for a number of years, including last year where we had the opportunity to serve on the same coaching staff at Rossview High School. Today, Caleb will share his perspective on adversity, developing a career over time, and what makes an awesome dad, husband, worker, and coach. So I hope you'll grab a notebook and a pen and listen in to our conversation with firefighter Caleb Slaughter. All right, I'm joined today by Coach Caleb Slaughter. And Coach, uh, really appreciate you jumping on the call today. Hey, no problem, Coach. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I'm just sitting here at a uh, in the parking lot watching my little boy practice for the first time since the uh, pandemic has started to slow down a little bit. Yeah, I know it's been a crazy time for, for everybody. I'm sure he's excited to get back out there on the field, and I know you are. I know you're excited to be taking him out there to a field. Oh, yeah, anything we can do to um, to get my family out and keep them active while also at the same time being safe with uh, the social distancing right now, it's, um, it's, it's, it's paramount that we get out and stay active no matter what. Sure, absolutely. I was reflecting on uh, this opportunity to get you on the call with my wife, Courtney, and, uh, you know, she was obviously very excited, too, because she is actually how you and I first met. I think you all were working at uh, the the sports facility in Clarksville. She was teaching softball and you were teaching baseball. And I think that's sort of how we, we met early on there. And, you know, we've had the opportunity to uh, coach together, obviously at Rossview, and then, you know, to spend some time together as friends. Um, and so I just, again, really fortunate to get you on the call. I want to start today by asking you about your journey to where you are today. So where you're from, I know you played at a number of different places in college. Uh, you played some <laughs> professional baseball. So walk us through your path to where you are today. Uh, throw your family in there as well, but but really, you know, how you got to where you are now. Yes, sir, Coach, and I'll try to be as um, as, as short as I can. So, but, um, you know, I like to talk. I get motivated, get excited. But um, long story short, uh, my dad, when he got out of Vietnam, he was stationed in a uh, little mil- a Marine Corps base on the uh, Outer Banks near um, Cherry Point, North Carolina. And I lived there for a long time as a little boy growing up. And then when he got out of the Marine Corps, he decided to move back to Clarksville, where he was originally from. And um, basically, we just grew up. My mom and dad got divorced. They went their own separate ways. But uh, I continued, you know, bouncing around family to family and, uh, you know, grew up, went to a local high school in Clarksville. Um, my parents and grandparents tried to push me to, to follow their steps of staying in the military and, and do that as a career. Um, I didn't want to do that. I grew up with probably five or six different military installations around the country, and I just thought, man, I did that as a kid. I sure as heck don't want to do it as, as an adult. So um, I was a pretty decent athlete. I got recruited to um, play college baseball uh, and went and signed with Austin P. 
Um, and as a freshman, I went in and uh, everything was going good, but um, got kind of got caught up with um, with things. Um, I wasn't able to balance the academics and uh, the uh, the social aspect of baseball, so I had to go to a, a junior college in Southern Illinois called Rend Lake. Uh, played there for a year, uh, got homesick, still wasn't mature. Uh, had to come back home, and I went to a junior college my sophomore year in uh, Nashville called Vol State uh, or Volunteer State Community College. Played there for a year, uh, had a really, really good experience, started to develop a little bit more emotionally, but even more, started developing physically, got a little bit bigger, stronger, started to produce a little bit more on the field. Uh, got recruited to go to a uh, small school up in East Tennessee called Lincoln Memorial University. Spent a year there, uh, got even better. So um, I basically foregone my senior year of baseball um, at Lincoln Memorial and decided to sign a, uh, a minor league contract with the Montreal Expos. And I think that was around 95, 96, somewhere around there. So from 95 to 98, 99, somewhere right there, I, I went from the Montreal Expos to the Boston Red Sox, going to uh, catch a lot of bullpens and, and go to their spring training. And, um, of course, like most people, when they get invited to spring training, they get released right off the bat if uh, they don't have a lot of money invested in you. So um, every time, every spring when I would get released, I would go play uh, independent baseball at multiple different places, from Canada to Wisconsin to West Virginia to Tennessee. And uh, just did that for about three and a half to four years. Got a really, really good experience um, of seeing the business side of how minor league baseball works. And... Um, Somewhere around 99, 98-ish, somewhere around there, I, I traveled home to uh, spend some time with my, with my mother, and we had one of those, um, those son-parent conversations, and she was basically, she laid it out there for me. You know, I was 23, 24 years old, wasn't making a lot of money. She's still trying to support me wherever she could, and basically she said, you know, hey, are you going to make it? I was like, Mom, I don't know. I mean, I've got a handful of friends that already made it to the big leagues, and I'm in single A. I was like, if I was going to make it, I'd be doing a lot better than what I am right now. So um, kind of made that adult, adult decision to um, quit chasing the dream and uh, do something different and um, signed up to, the, to be a fireman to the city of Clarksville in the fall of 99. And from that point until present day, I've been a fireman EMT uh, trying to support and, and, and um, save my community um, through anything I can. And during that time, um, met a young lady, ended up getting married. We've been together 23 years. Her name's Brandy. We have a 13-year-old and a 9-year-old, Caden Keegan, two little boys. And um, during my fire department time, I have plenty of time to help um, give back to the community. So I coach. I volunteer coaching. Um, I coached at Ball State a couple, for a couple years early on. But since then, I've been doing middle school and high school baseball, and that's um, basically how you and I met, sir. Yeah. No, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that perspective. And, and when I hear you talk about the early part of your – college career and then you know your professional career and then compared to the backside of your career where you've been a firefighter for you know about 20 plus years obviously been married for 23 years uh and and you've had a lot of consistency you know I think that it's it's a stark contrast from the beginning to the end so talk a little bit about how you've grown as a person uh and kind of developed since you first started in college to this point now what are some areas where where you feel like you've really grown and developed well I think I mean whether it be on the field stuff with baseball perspective or off the field stuff with emotions and relationships 
I think the number one, I mean, the number one driving force, I think there's been a lot of failure, a lot of failure, seeing family fail, doing different things, mother and father getting divorced and married three times each, um, not being able to get the scholarship that I wanted, getting kicked out of college, not getting drafted out of college and having to sign as a free agent, then getting released multiple times, uh, not getting a couple different job opportunities I wanted. Uh, then, of course, getting onto the fire department and then seeing multiple, 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 you know, fatalities and, and bad negative type things at the fire department. It's just it's just consistent failure, but it's not failure that I sit there and dwell in. It's something that I'll see, I'll adjust, and then I'll overcome it, and then it just it's, it's allowed me. And it's not been a, a drastic, fast descent to where I'm, I am now. It's been a gradual, slow climb, but it's everything has had a a – negative that I've turned into a positive, whether it be something big or small. But um, I think, I think ultimately it's just constant failure. Um, and, and I've been able to overcome a lot of things. Wow. No, that's great perspective. And um, you know, just a couple of things when you were talking about that, I mean, you know, I think we all perceive or a lot of people perceive the road to success as this linear climb up a mountain, you know, and you, you said in, right there in your answer that, it's, it's, it's been a long journey for you, you know, that it's been some success mixed in with some failure and then you learn from it and you continue to grow and there's more success that comes because of that. And I think that's much more realistic uh, in regards to how success actually happens. You know, you're going to have some success and you'll think you're making it and then you get knocked down a little bit and then you've got to recover and learn from that growth. And and the thing we tell our guys, and it seems like you've embodied this in your career and your life, is that, you know, failure is not final until you walk away from it, until you quit. And uh, so it's great to hear that perspective. And, uh, you know, I can definitely see where that's paid off for you now uh, to where you are in your life. So uh, that's great. Talk about how you define leadership. Now, leadership may look a little bit different for you because, you know, you the, the role that you're currently in as far as uh at Rossview in the baseball program is you're an assistant coach, but then even at the fire department, you know, that's not the same as, as the prototypical sports leadership. So walk us through how you define it and, and how it shapes the way that you may lead in your profession. Um, so, so probably my freshman year in high and my freshman year in college was in 1992 and up until probably de uh, December, January of this current time period they're in right now I've probably taken part in roughly 30 to 33 different kind of leadership type courses whether it be in college online um, whatever it may be I've, I've been involved in multiple multiple I've done uh, four or five through the, the local military base taking part and trying to learn but there are so many different kind of ways to lead uh, a lot of people think well you know I can just get out in the middle of a group and beat my chest and that's leading uh, a lot of people think, well, I can sit there and I can just yell at a kid, and that's leading. There's so many different so, – and some people also, they just lead by example. And what I've learned, and, and, if, and it's not for everybody. Everybody has their own quirks and their, their ways that they do things. But I've never been a rah-rah, kind of beat myself on the chest and, and, and expect someone else to do things. Um, I've noticed that what works for me and what helps me be consistent and also successful in whatever group I'm in, whether it's fire department, coaching, teams I've played for, or even actually my family, because a lot of people don't even think about leadership when it comes to family, but your wife and kids, they look at you for leadership, however it is you do it, but that's also leadership and people don't think about it. But I think just 
leading by example. Um, like I said, I don't beat my chest. I will, if I see that we need to go do something, I'll just do something. I'll just start going. Uh, we might have a little, you know, discussion, a five-minute conversation about philosophy or technique or whatever it may be, but then I might sometimes be the first one out of the door, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go do it. Or, you know, that's on the baseball field. Or if it's something fire-related, if we're going into a house to, to pull somebody out of a, a, a structure fire, I'm going to be potentially the first one in the house. Or if we're having to cut somebody out of the car, I'm going to be the first one doing it. I'm not going to say, hey, guys, come help me. I'm going to be the one, first one doing it and let them follow. And as long as I have heart and desire and good ethics and everything, people will follow. That's just that's the human nature. They will do that. As long as you're not putting them in any kind of uh, hazard or any kind of unsafe situations, they will follow. Sure. It sounds like um, – go I, ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, and what I was also going to share, another little thing that I like to think about, and I, I heard someone, I can't remember who, who talked about this. It was an athlete. But uh, the light on, light off mentality. And a lot of kids in the, sports, in the sports world, when it comes to working out and hitting and throwing and lifting and stuff, they only want to get out and produce and show effort when the lights are on, meaning, you know, during, during game time or when the scouts are coming to see. But they don't really want to do anything when the lights are off, when no one's around watching. But I think it should be the other way around. It's the way I try to teach kids. is like if you do what you're supposed to when the lights are off, when no one's around and you're pushing yourself and building that work ethic – that when the lights are on, everything will work for you. But you can't do it the other way around. You've got to put you've got to put the work in when the lights are off, and that will help you out. And I think that's another thing of leadership is if you can start doing that and teaching yourself that at a young age, you know, not necessarily middle school or anything like that. But if you can start building those that work ethic as a high school college kid, doing it when the lights are off, people will follow you when the lights are on. Mm. That's really good. I like that a lot, and I think that's so true, uh, especially. You know, in today's society, as we look at, you know, the, the, the amount of attention that people get. I mean, the lights are, are technically on these kids because now with social media and, and the amount of time, like your game highlights, you know, it's no longer you pop in a VHS or a DVD player with your family and you watch it potentially. Or you may just not even watch it and move on to the next game. Instead, now it's on Instagram, Twitter, and there's all these, you know, third-party services that are blowing you up, and um, it's 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 very easy to get sucked into that and not be able to recenter yourself when the lights are off. So uh, that's great perspective. So what's the hardest part then? Okay, you, you know, obviously you're in a very intense profession. Uh, what are some of the hardest parts about being a leader, in your opinion? I think the, the hardest part is, and, and of course, I don't know if it's percentages or how you would look at that. You know, is it a bar graph, a pie chart? How, how do you figure this out? And I don't know. But I think that's, it's, that's in society as a whole. I think there's very, very, very few true leaders out there at the, you know, the tip of the, the top of the mountain, so to speak. Not many people truly want to be a leader. A lot of people say they want to, but nobody truly wants to do it. So when there's someone, let's just say like myself or like yourself, when there is somebody that's out front that's wanting to get to the top of the mountain and they're doing what they're supposed to do, I think the hardest part, it's not the people that are right there in the middle that have said they want to do it because, you know, they've kind of got their feet with. They, you know, they're, they're coming. They're following you. They're following you. It's the new people that have no idea what's going on, whether it's kids, whether it's your family, whether it's, you know, it's someone in your, in your office that doesn't have any experience, 
trying to get them to understand your passion and your desire and that you're trying to lead them and, and they don't stray off to the side and kind of get hung in with that middle group. I think that's, in my mind, I think that's the, the hardest thing is if, if you see someone get to the top of that mountain, you know that you're the one at the top of the mountain. There's nobody else up there. Then the other people should somehow see that. And I think that's the, that's, that's the, the hard part, trying to get them to follow you instead of the, the slackers. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a, it's a lot easier, I think, to, to settle for that mediocrity, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's human nature too. Yeah. Uh, especially when you don't have experience, you know, if you don't have an experience doing something, uh, and you don't have confidence, then you might just want to give it an, an average amount of effort because sure. you, you know, you're going to see a little bit of reward there because you don't know how much effort I have to give. But then the longer you're in it, you see another guy who's way at the top of the mountain. You're like, how did he do that? You know, I'm never going to be able to get up there if I keep doing what I'm doing, even though I'm having a little bit of success, but I'm still not up there. There's no way in the world I'll get there. And then the longer that you do it and you see that guy up there at the top, his consistent desire, and his consistent work ethic, you're like, all right, I've got to shift gears. And I, I, I think that's how it works. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think that's another trait of leadership, too, is is being able to bring those people along. You know, I heard you talking about, you know, if you're new at a company or if you're new on a, on a team, you know, you don't know how things are done. Um, and at Charleston, I always think of our transfers, you know, our junior college transfers, because they are coming from a whole nother culture, a whole nother dynamic. And a lot of times, if we're doing a good job in recruiting and, we, you know, we're recruiting kids from other great programs, then they may have some foundational elements of leadership already within them. But, you know, anytime you change programs, it's a transition, you know? And so I think that's one of the biggest things that I really try to advise our upperclassmen and our leaders on our team is like, Hey, you know, you all have to be the one to bring these new guys along to kind of baptize them within our culture and what the expectations and the standards are in our program. So it's, it's really cool to hear you say that. And I think I always think back to Nick Saban. I'm a big, not necessarily an Alabama fan, but I have a lot of respect for, for Nick Saban, obviously. And one of my favorite quotes of his is it, it, it takes what it takes, right? You can't cheat the process. You, you can't, you know, fake your way to, as you would say, the top of the mountain, you know, it's just going to take what it takes and you got to be willing to put in the work every day in order to get there. So I really like that a lot. And it's, and it, every, everybody want, it might sound like a cliche and everybody always would, would say that, but it's true. I don't care what facet of life it is. There are going to be some people that were born with unbelievable abilities and talents and whatever it may be for whatever that job is, but you still have to work at that craft no matter what. And you got to be consistent at it. No matter what, no matter what the job is, you've got to work. Yeah, Absolutely. Let's go back to uh, something you were talking about earlier in regards to your personal path. You know, we, we talked about how you faced some failure along the way. So, you know, speak a little bit more to that. What, what's some adversity that you have faced that's kind of helped shape the person or the leader that you are today? Well, um, and, and I think I prefaced this at the very beginning, um, and I don't want this to sound cliche-ish and probably – 50% of the stuff I talk about today, it's going to sound like a cliche, but you know, when, when the longer that you live on the earth and you hear cliches and you live life, good and bad, whatever, you're going to pick up things. And it's always going to relate back to different things in your life. But um, 
growing up, number one, growing up, seeing my mom and dad get divorced three times each and them, them go off on their own and have different kind of relationships and you're in the middle of it. I think right there at the very, very beginning, and as a child, you don't think about it because you're upset and you're tired and you're scared and you're upset and you're crying all the time, but you're building an extremely solid foundation of basically what not to do in life. You know, I'm not going to sit there and, and berate my family over their, over their, their, um, the decisions they made when I was a child. But now that I'm a grown man and I have a family, um, when me and Brandy got together, um, that's basically one of the very first things I said, I said, there, there are many, many, many things that we're going to disagree on. Uh, but that's just human nature when you have two people trying to coexist. I said, but no, no, no matter what we're going to stick together and you know, we're just, we're just not going to go down the same path. And all the, my parents basically, they, they drew out a blueprint of what not to do. So everything that my parents did negatively, I did everything positively. And that's how basically I've been able to have a, uh, a successful marriage, you know, so that didn't fail. And I think everything hinges off of home, how mom and dad love each other. I think that's going to reflect on the children and the, the children are, they're just going to copy that. Um, so, but that's, that's on a personal note, but then more on a, on a more of a professional note, of course, all the failures and stuff growing up through high school and college and professional ball and all that. But I think when I truly started to evolve and to really develop more as a man and getting out of the young, you know, the young adolescent 20 year old age group or whatever, where I kind of really didn't know what I wanted life. But when I got into the fire service and I started to see what the real world was and how people lived behind closed doors and seeing death and also helping deliver babies. So I'm getting to see the, the beginning and the end stages of life. It truly, truly, truly woke me up to what the world was. And that no matter how bad that I thought life was, it really wasn't as bad as it could be because I'm exposed to so many people that have shortcomings and people that are, are have been dealt the wrong cards in life. So I think, I think, having my parents, the relationship I have with my parents growing up, my childhood, and then my experience at the fire department, putting those together, I don't think anything for me personally could have, could have, could have built, could have um, given me a better background and to, to, to grow on. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, and I think from, from my personal experience with you, you know, I would comment that you are one of the most loyal people that, that I know, you know, you're one of the most committed people as, as a friend and as a, a fellow coach working on the same staff as you, you know, and even from afar, like when I see your interactions uh, with your other, you know, firefighters and the people at the firehouse, you know, and you're always cooking for them and, you know, you're, you're always trying to help out where you can. Like, I think there's a, a level of commitment that I would argue, you know, probably developed from that. Would, would you say that's correct? Absolutely. Um, and I think we talked about this the other day. Um, and this is potentially another cliche, however you want to, you know, you want to look at or um, look at it. But um, I've always used this, this, this phrase, uh, every rep counts. And a lot of people think, well, when you say that, Caleb, you're just talking about, hey, how many more swings can I get off the tee? How many more ground balls can you get? How many more, um, you know, push-ups can I get? And, and I don't mean just that. Everything that I'm, when I say Every rep counts. That means everything that you do in life matters, whether that's me spending five minutes with you talking about your, your wife and little babies. Those five minutes, that's the only thing that matters. Those five minutes count. 
whether you're you're sitting there laying in bed, every time your heart beats, every repetition that your heartbeat matters. If I'm spending 15 or 20 minutes extra at the fire department to help somebody row some hose up, those 15 matters are the only thing that matters in the world. So when you say that I'm pretty loyal and devoted, I believe whenever I'm focused on doing something with somebody, that if I'm giving my time to them, or even if they're giving time to me, that I should be saturated in that moment. And that's the only thing that matters. Yeah, of course, I love my family and I love this and I do. I care for people. But at that moment, that's the only thing that matters. So I think that the reps that we get in every second of the things we do in life, we should focus more on the now and not worry so much about the end result. And I think that we will have a much more, um, um, can't really think of a term. I think that our life will be more Mm well-rounded and uh, we will be able to help more people. If, we're, if we focus on the reps that we're getting right now with people. Wow. That, that is an unbelievable testament to um, a whole number of things that I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, my mind is, is racing now in regards to whether it's leadership or even sports performance or uh, culture developing, like the idea of being present, you know, and, and I think that's what you're really talking about there is, you know, to steal a cliche from you or to steal a cliche it's, uh, you know, be where your feet are. That's what everybody in the baseball field talks about uh, is just be where your feet are, you yep. know. And um, I think just the element of, of being present is such a powerful thing because it makes you a better listener. Uh, it makes you more understanding and, and compassionate uh, and obviously caring, as, as in your case. I mean, I think you're one of the most caring people that I've, that I've been around. So uh, that's, that's great to hear you say that. Let's let's talk a little bit about your time as a baseball coach specifically, because you have a unique, um, I think, perspective in that you've coached at the college level, you've coached at the youth level, right? And then you've also coached at the high school level as well. And in all those roles, you've been an assistant coach, which I think is a, it's a special trait to have within itself is to be a really good assistant coach. So talk about what you think is important in being a good assistant coach? Well, I think number one from the, from let's just say we're talking about the high school or the uh, head coach perspective, being a head coach. I don't think, I don't think the head coach is more is, is, is as much of a hands-on guy as he is just basically he's the, he's the general, he's the, um, he's the president of the corporation, so to speak. So he has to dabble in everything, and he might not have time to, to, to devote to one particular thing here and there. He has to be in charge of everything. So his relationships are not going to be as probably strong because he's bouncing around from here to there to there to there to there. Whereas an assistant coach, of course, less stress. Uh, of course, I have less on my plate than the head coach. So I can spend more time with one child or one group of players and getting, getting to build that rapport and getting to build that friendship, um, you know, camaraderie, whatever you want to look at or whatever you want to call it, I think it's, um, it's, more, it's more special from my perspective because you're allowed to do that. When, there's, when, when you see a kid get it, whatever it may be, whatever the drill you're teaching them, um, whenever they get it, a lot of the times the, the, the player, when he runs back into the dugout or he runs back off the field, sometimes they will make eye contact with the assistant coach quicker than they win the head coach because number one the head coach has probably already started to focus on the very next drill or the very next play that you know whatever we have to do whereas the assistant coach in the dugout he can sit there and and focus on that the uh the success 
that that kid got off what he just did on the field. So the assistant coach and, and, and that relationship, I think the, um, I think that's, that's, that's much more special than the, than being the head coach. Wow. That's an interesting perspective for sure. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's no doubt that, that you're probably pretty accurate in what you're saying. I think about to my time as an assistant coach, you know, you're kind of the head coach of a much smaller group of people. And like you said, it allows you that extra element of time um, and space to, number one, develop those players, which I know you're an exceptional player development person, especially with catchers, you know, and, and so it gives you more time to do that. And when you're in that close-knit setting, you know, it gives you an opportunity to really connect with them on a personal level. And so um, it's, it's neat to hear you talk about that. I know from my role moving from an assistant coach position last year to being, you know, a first year head coach this year, it's tough when you walk into a, uh, a baseball classroom session with your team and you've got, you know, 40 players and then you got 10 to 12 staff members and managers and you're managing a room of 55, it's really difficult in that element to develop a personal relationship. And so I know, from, you know, again, from the head coach's perspective, like I got to rely heavily on my assistant coaches to be able to fill in, you know, because if I try to do it all myself, number one, we're not going to be very good. But number two, you know, there's just not enough time to do that. And so you're doing your players a disservice if you try to micromanage them. That's why I think, you know, having assistant coaches that are really talented, loyal, you know, that's really important. I mean, I think back to our time at Rossview last year, you know, maybe you want to touch on the staff that's over there a little bit, but I felt like it was, it was such a fun group to be around as far as coaches, because we all were on the same page. We all were aligned. So talk a little bit about, you know, whether it's coach Holman or, or coach Gunner, but just the the atmosphere that's created at Rossview and why that's so successful uh, in regards to, or in terms of a coaching staff. I think, I think number one, and the number one thing of of our group that we had uh, or the culture that coach Holman has created at Rossview, it's, I think the number one aspect, it's just being selfless. Um, Not necessarily, I don't think anyone there cares about, you know, being labeled as as the guy or you know I know coach Holman's the head guy and, he, and when he wins he gets the W underneath his name but when it comes to success I don't think any of the in the end of the coaches there care about what it takes to win on the field whether it be you coach Britt or coach Gunter as a pitching coach or me as a catching hitting it doesn't matter as long as we're getting the job done it doesn't matter who's at the front of the pack and I think that was the number what I've learned over the past four or five years with them it is that uh, nobody there has such a big ego that they're, they're not willing to take a step back and let someone else teach. Um, and prime example, when you, when you, when you came and you stepped in, none of us got in your way because we understood this is a young man who's passionate. He's driven, has a lot of energy. Of course, he also has a lot of knowledge from his experience in college. Why not let him take the reins and go with it? You know, but why not? Uh, but there, there's never, it's not an, an, an ego thing. Whereas some other schools, you can see that from time to time. And then with that being said, like I said about the mountaintop thing, you see the kids in the middle of the pack there, they're going to see the coaches, you know, bumping, bumping elbows with one another, and they're not going to follow. They're going to, they're going to pick a coach they want to, to grasp onto, and they're just going to go with them. And that's right there is when you, you cause a divide, and you don't want that in a, in a team atmosphere. So I think that's the number one reason why uh, we have such a 
um, successful culture there. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I, I completely agree 100%. That's something that I really honestly took away from Ross view as I left and, and came here to, to Charleston is that, you know, you got to be able to leave your ego at the door and that's difficult to do. You know, I think especially in competition or in business, uh, even being a teacher. I mean, I felt that as a teacher, there were people that I worked with, you know, in the classroom that you're like, man, they got an ego. And I think if you're a competitor, that's natural to have a little bit of that. But at the same time, you know, you got to be able to, to leave it at the door. And that's if you're able to do that, you're going to make your coaching staff. Uh, there's going to be a, a more open line of communication, which is then going to allow them the freedom to get their players better. And, uh, you know, I, I give all the credit in the world to Coach Holman for that because I think he does a tremendous job of fostering that culture at Rossview, you know, amongst his coaching staff. T- tell me a little bit if, you know, if it's something that you've tried or maybe it is something that you've read or listened to. What's been the most impactful thing that you've consumed recently that's really either got you thinking or that you've been able to uh, bring into your own leadership characteristics? What are, what's the most Im- impactful thing you've consumed recently? Well, there's been two things and I've read this book probably 15 times over the past five or six years, but it's called the hinge uh, by Dr. Rob okay. Bell. And it's basically a little 75 to 80 page book. And it's just, in a nutshell, it's just a different way to, uh, to, um, to access mental toughness. Um, I can't really get into it too much. I want, you know, you need to read it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You read it, but it's a, it's, it's an unbelievable mental toughness book. You can get it done. You can read it in a couple hours and it's, it's just an, it's just an unbelievable way to, it's just an unbelievable way to look at mental toughness from a different perspective that most people don't look at. All they see is sometimes right in front of them or they look from side to side. This is, let's dive down deep inside of it and look at it backwards. It's just a completely different way of looking at mental toughness. Um, and the second one, it's the documentary that I've been watching lately about the Chicago Bulls, uh, The Last oh, Dance. So good. I know a lot of people, a lot of people over this pandemic uh, have been given an opportunity to sit down on Sunday evenings and watch that. And, um, you know, and they, and, they, and they look at Michael Jordan with his shoes and they look at Michael Jordan, you know, d- doing all these unbelievable dunks. And they look at Michael Jordan and his relationships with his, with his teammates and they look at the wins and losses, whatever. But the only thing that I get out of it, just like last week's episode, when he was sitting there talking about he rather win than anything else in the world, and he ended the episode, mm-hmm. he was crying. And he said, we have to stop this. His eyes were watering because he has more passion in winning than anything else on this earth. Now, I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. If you take that away from Michael Jordan, we don't even know who Michael Jordan is. You know, and that's probably going to lead to him having a lot of bad relationships in life, whatever it may be, and that's fine. But that's what creates Michael Jordan. That's what he is. And I'm not saying that anyone else has to try to compare themselves to that. That's not it. But he is so consumed with just the winning part, everything else doesn't matter, but it does matter because he is leading from the front. And he might rub people the wrong way. He might push you around. He might hurt your feelings. He doesn't care, though. I am there for one reason. I am there to win. I'm going to leave from the, top, from the top of the mountain. If you don't want to come, that's great. But he gets so consumed with that that it makes everyone around him follow, and that culture gets created, thus leading right into success. But it's just the pure passion of I want to win more than anything else in the world. So 
the book, Dr. Rob Bell, The Hinge, and then the, uh, the miniseries or the docuseries about the Bulls, it's, it's, it's fascinating of um, over this downtime how it's shock senses in my brain and this and that, and, man, yeah. it's just amazing. Oh, no doubt. I, you know, obviously I've been watching it from start to finish, and, and that episode specifically, you know, I wish that I could cut that out and just replay it, you know, on our on our podcast by itself, because honestly, like that is that is leadership. Leadership is hard. You know, it is challenging. And I was talking with uh, one of my friends about that. You know, that's that's also a, a, a head coach. And, you know, it, it's tough to be a leader. And what I find so intriguing about Michael and, you know, everybody gets into the debate about, you know, MJ, uh, Kobe, LeBron, whatever, they're all obviously extremely, extremely good basketball players. But what I think, if anything, separates Michael is that he was able to bring people along with him. And you saw in that little clip, that two-minute clip that you're talking about, you know, all of his people hugging and dancing and they're celebrating with the trophies. And, you know, it's that whole light on versus light off that you're talking about earlier. You know, that's the lights on and that's what you that's what you strive for. Right. But none of that has any meaning if there's not some cliche blood, sweat and tears when the lights are off. You know, and that's what Michael was so good at was was drawing that out of people and getting them you know, to do what they had to do in order to then experience what they wanted on the back end. So what what kind of advice do you have for for young developing leaders, people that might have been where you were at, uh, you know, when you first started out, Austin P. Vol State, LMU, um, you know, what's some advice that you have for those up-and-coming emerging leaders as they start on their That's journey? a great question, Coach. Um, I think a lot of this, uh, the answer that, that I would give somebody or the advice that I would give them, I think it, it, it stems from going all the way back to your childhood and however you were raised with your, you know, whatever your mom and dad taught you or your grandparents, you know, be respectful. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Please, thank you. Be humble. Show humility in everything that you do. Be respectful um, and care about, uh, care about other people because people are not stupid. If they see that you're not truly, truly invested in them and they see that you're kind of like not going up at this, this the right way, Mother Nature will remind you really, really quickly that you're not doing this for the right reason. So no matter what you're doing, whether it's sports or in business or what, whatever it may be, I think those core values will lead you down the right path and will allow you to be a leader even when you're probably not even thinking about it. But basically, be humble, be respectful, and love people and show them that you care. And, you know, I think that's the, the, the core values of being a leader. Mm. That's good. That's awesome. We talk about with our guys, we have our six championship behaviors, and number two is is respectful, you know. You're going to be be respectful of the people around you. But then also, and you said this, is be respectful of yourself. Like, you know, if you're not working hard, if you're not going to class, if you're not, uh, you know, investing in the people around you, then, then you're not respecting who you were made to be. Um, and so I think there's a lot of truth to that. And then obviously the humility part, too. It's we go back to our conversation about the, the staff culture that we had. So, Coach, uh, before we before we close up for today. Uh, you've got some big news, right? You're in you're in transition mode. You're you're changing seasons of your life, and I think it's really neat uh, to see what you're about to venture into. But talk to our audience a little bit about what you're getting ready to transition into uh, in your on your career path, 
and uh, kind of the mindset that you're getting ready to bring into this new uh, chapter of your life. Yeah, thank you for, uh, for bringing that up, Coach. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so for the past 20 years, I've been a fireman EMT, and we've kind of, you know, um, hit on that a couple times here and there in the conversation. But the, uh, the uh, school system I've been um, helping coach baseball at has, over the past three years, they've been coming to me talking about wanting to create a fire science program um, for the um, high school level in this community. Uh, it hasn't existed ever, and um, basically wanted to, to get some insight on what it would take for it to happen. Well, from 2017 to current day 2020, the program is, um, has been developed. Uh, the curriculum is not developed yet, but the program has, and they offer me the position. And now me, as a 46-year-old crusty old fireman, uh, I'm going to be uh, reinventing myself, so to speak, and I'm going to leave the fire department, and I'm going to transition over to the school system, and I'm going to be teaching a fire science program to uh, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors at the high school level. And um, the objective is to uh, – it's called Firefighter One. Uh, in every state around the United States, there's a Firefighter One, and that basically means when a new hiree into whatever department around the country – they have to pass firefighter one to basically to continue their career and to become a professional fireman. Well, our objective uh, at the school system, Rossview, is to when these kids graduate high school, they're going to have 12 hours of college credit to apply to a fire science program uh, to a degree at whatever school they want to go to. Uh, and they're going to have already su successfully completed firefighter one. So they're going to be doing stuff at the high school level that guys that are 25, 30 years old haven't even done yet. And if I can create any kind of a spark in these kids' brain and get them motivated day in, day out, day in, day out, and get them excited about a different avenue in their, in their uh, life possibly, this could be an amazing opportunity for, uh, for the youth in the community. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's uh, Congratulations on that. I know you're extremely excited. Now you get to be on campus uh, so that you can, you know, hop right out of the classroom and then hop right onto the field uh, in the afternoon. That's that's awesome. How do you plan on um, – or I guess the better question is, what are some of the characteristics that you're going to take from uh, your time as a firefighter, your time as a baseball coach? You know, what are some of those characteristics you're going to take from the classroom? Uh, of course, I'm probably going to have to tone down my mouth. You know, when you're a fireman, you can say certain things. Uh, around other adults, um, whether it be in a fire or whatever it may be, you can talk a certain way because you get heated. So I'm going to have to obviously tone that down. But uh, the, the focus uh, and the, uh, the desire to try to, to sh teach kids, that's not going to change because I kind of get kind of crazy, and you know that. I kind of get crazy anyway at times. So I think that kids need that. Of course, I'm not going to stand on desk and go crazy and throw axes across the room. I'm not going to do that. But every morning, I'm going to be bringing a fire department mentality to these teenage kids so they see that that's kind of, you know, don't follow me, don't be me, be yourself. But they're going to have to see that they need to turn that light switch on, and they've got to be mentally prepared every day. Because at the fire department, if you're not mentally ready to go, you're going to put yourself at risk, you're going to put your partner at risk, and you're going to put the patient at risk because you're not mentally locked in. So if these kids can see at 15, 16, 17 years old how to slowly turn that light switch on, then I think as they continue to devote to uh, evolve uh, emotionally, I think that will – I'm not saying I'm trying to turn them into adults. It's not the objective. But I'm trying to help them learn 
how to turn that light switch on to be able to handle, handle the different things that life's going to throw at them. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds like it's going to be a high energy class. And, and I know that, uh, you know, as you've done in so many different paths of your life, you know, you'll make it uh, very rewarding and obviously, uh, you know, I'm sure an exceptional class for those kids. So I am as excited, I think, as, as many people are in the, in the Clarksville community to get to see uh, what you're going to bring to the table. And I think it's obviously going to be something very special. So I want to thank you again for jumping on the call today, you know, obviously as somebody that I respect in, in the coaching profession, but then also as a friend of mine, um, you know, we are extremely grateful for your presence tonight and just want to thank you uh, again for hopping on the thank call. Thank you so much, Coach. And if there's anything that I can do for you or your family, anything I can help you on a personal note or if I can help you with uh, coaching, I'll, I'll, I'll do anything I can to help you, sir. I want to thank each of you so much for tuning into our conversation here today. If you liked what you heard, we're going to ask you to do a couple things for us. Number one is subscribe so that you'll have the opportunity to be aware of future podcasts that come up on a biweekly basis. The second thing is we're going to ask you to give us a five-star rating and make a comment on Apple Podcasts. That way we can continue to grow and develop our podcast and to reach more people. Number three, we're going to ask you to share with at least one person that you feel could benefit from the conversation that we had today. By doing those things, you're allowing us here at Culture House to fulfill our mission of empowering leaders and organizations alike to share one vision and speak with one voice. We hope that you'll tune in next time on the Building Blocks podcast brought to you by Culture House LLC. And as always, may you strive for excellence by beating your yesterday every day.